0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from the auto workers' strike. Ron Elliott on the weekend in politics, including a senator's indictment, including gold bars and a Mercedes-Benz. Daniel Mason's new novel on the march of history over the same patch of New England woods, and Kylie Minogue. star since the late 1980s on her new music and what she might tell the teen she was on her way to becoming the best-selling female australian singer of all time
1: try to be kind to yourself i think we can be our own worst critics that's one thing i would like to tell my younger self and probably eat your greens
0: well if kylie minogue tells us first our newscast it's saturday september 23rd 2023.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The East Coast is contending with a tropical storm that's delivering high winds, heavy rain, and a life-threatening storm surge. NPR's Amy Held reports that Ophelia made landfall this morning in North Carolina and is moving northward toward New England.
3: Ophelia is a huge system,
4: its winds extending out more than 300 miles. But its rain up to eight inches
5: is bringing flash flood
6: risks, especially in urban areas that just can't soak it all in. That's the kind of setup that
0: worries us the most when you have a
6: slow-moving tropical system like this.
7: Richard Bond is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service and says as the storm moves up,
4: it will speed up,
0: and that's a good thing. So that's going to help alleviate some of the flash flooding concerns. And then as it's moving north, it's also going to become weaker.
4: Life-threatening
7: flooding could also come from storm surge. That's the ocean water winds can push onto land in parts of North Carolina and Virginia. Those states, plus Maryland, are all under states of emergency. Amy Held, NPR News.
2: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is running out of time to reach a deal on a government funding plan. He has yet to clinch an agreement after he was unable to persuade hard right House Republicans to approve a temporary funding measure to meet next week's deadline. Early voting has begun in Virginia and closely watched legislative elections at University of Maryland political analyst Michael Hanmer says could be a bellwether for the rest of the nation. I think there'll certainly be signals that come out of Virginia.
8: I mean, it's, it's a really interesting state politically, I think. Um, very diverse um in, in, in a number of different ways and and I think that what, what happens in, in Virginia is something that people will absolutely take a look at, and, and both sides will we'll figure out what what they can learn.
2: All 140 of Virginia's nearly divided General Assembly seats are on the ballot. An NPR investigation has found 5,000 people died in federal custody in roughly 10 years, and one in four of those deaths happened in a single prison hospital. NPR's Meg Anderson explains what by, what's uh, behind those numbers. More deaths at the Butner Federal Medical Center in North Carolina makes sense on the surface. It's a hospital, after all. But staff there say inmates are sometimes transferred to the prison with disease so advanced there's not much to do for them. And inmates nationwide sometimes go without needed medical care. NPR found many who waited months, even years, for treatment. Michelle Deitch, a researcher at the University of Texas at Austin,
9: says more federal oversight could improve care. There are so many things that we
4: don't know about our prisons. Dangerous are they? How much violence is there? How well does the healthcare system work? We can't answer fundamental
2: questions. She says, until then, preventable deaths will just keep happening. Meg Anderson, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Federal regulators are warning the MBTA to follow the rules after several recent incidents in which workers were nearly hit by trains. The Boston Globe reports that the Federal Transit Administration sent a letter to the T accusing it of violating new orders the FTA put in place last week. The letter says the T sent workers onto the tracks alone Despite the new prohibition of such solo work, the FTA imposed the regulations after four near-misses on tracks in a three-week span this summer. Plans are advancing for more frequent train service between Springfield and Boston. The federal government has awarded a grant of more than $100 million to the state of Massachusetts. Aldenborn reports.
3: U.S.
6: Representative Richard Neal made the announcement at Springfield's Union Station, joined by Governor Maura Healey and other elected officials. Meredith Schlesinger is with the state's Department of Transportation.
0: She says the federal money will pay to improve the infrastructure needed for East-West Rail.
9: We're going to be making track improvements between Springfield and Worcester in order to raise the class of track so that trains can operate at higher speeds. Improving the class of track means that we can get to that two-hour travel time between Boston and Springfield.
6: The first phase of the plan
0: involves adding two round trips between Boston and Springfield. A MassDOT official estimated it would take several years to make the improvements and start the new service. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne.
7: The Sumner Tunnel is closed again this weekend for more repairs. The tunnel, connecting East Boston to downtown, closed at 11 last night and will reopen at 5 a.m. Monday. This is the second of eight planned weekend closures before the end of the year. The annual What the Fluff Festival in Somerville's Union Square is postponed because of the rainy forecast. The tribute to the marshmallow spread invented in Massachusetts will now be held tomorrow from 3 to 7 p.m. It is 59 degrees in Boston and, yes, rain likely, mainly this afternoon and highs today in the low 60s. Some rain likely this evening and a chance of showers tomorrow, highs in
4: the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. United Auto Workers say they're making progress in talks with Ford, not so much with General Motors and Stellantis, Chrysler's parent company. So UAW members at dozens more locations are going on strike, and President Biden set to join the picket line. And Piers Camila Dominowski joins us. Camila, thanks so much for being with us.
9: Happy to be here, Scott.
0: And what's the union's big move here?
9: Yeah. So a couple of things. One, they are splitting the big three up, like you said. Now there's Ford on the one hand and the other two on the other hand. With Ford, the union says they've earned some, secured some big wins at the table in terms of equalizing pay across different locations, job security provisions, uh, raises that are tied to inflation. And so they say they're basically going easy on Ford now, still at strike on one plant, but not adding any more. On the other two, the union is expanding the strike to all of the company's parts distribution centers. These are not plants that produce Mm. vehicles, but these are basically warehouses that ship out replacement parts to dealerships.
0: And what do these strikes mean for, for drivers?
9: Yeah, so the, the strikes that started last week didn't have a huge impact and wouldn't for a very long time. But the strikes that just started yesterday could affect people who need a repair on a car. I spoke to Pete DeVito. He's with a different union that represents workers at car dealerships, and he said it's pretty simple.
10: The technicians can't fix the cars
2: without the parts.
9: Now, Mm. dealers knew this was coming, many of them stockpiled parts, but once they run through whatever they have locally, people might have to wait longer for a repair. And these parts that get shipped out from these distribution centers, they're tremendously profitable for companies, like people might have suspected if they looked at the price tag for some Mm. OEM parts, right? Hugely profitable. So consumers are basically collateral damage here as the union is trying to hit the car companies right in the
0: pocketbook. Uh, what can companies do about this?
9: Yeah, we know that the automakers knew this was a possibility and they were getting ready for this. And these distribution centers, you know, they aren't like an assembly line where it's basically impossible to get it back up and running if all your workers go out. In the 2019 UAW strike against General Motors, there were some salaried workers who were doing some work in these warehouses. I asked DeVito if he thinks the companies could avoid some snarls with their parts by basically doing that again, sending white-collared workers to run the warehouses, and he said this.
10: You remember when the NFL went on strike many years ago and they brought in the, the replacement players?
9: Um, full disclosure, Scott. I did not. Well, remember I, this. I,
10: I, yes,
0: I certainly remember it. And let's just say, with all respect, the games were not very good.
9: Yeah, Davido put it like this.
10: Nobody watched. <laughs> in this case, if you send in a team of accountants, nobody's going to get their parts.
9: So he's not optimistic about that backup strategy. We'll we'll just have to see. I, I asked the companies. General Motors said they have contingency plans that they are deciding whether to implement. They wouldn't discuss any further. Stellantis declined to comment.
0: What's ahead, Camila?
9: Well, you mentioned that President Biden is heading to Michigan to join the picket line, which is very unusual, as I understand it, possibly unprecedented, to mm-hmm. have a sitting president out on the line. Uh, the car companies are are really frustrated with the union. Stellantis says they made a competitive offer and haven't heard back at all. GM has called the union's demands untenable. Even Ford, the company where if the union said they're making real progress, Ford says there are significant gaps between the company and the union. So talks are continuing, but uh, definitely a possibility that more strikes will come, the strikes will expand again. And it's super hard to predict exactly what that might look like.
0: Camila Dominowski, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott.
10: What you see here are three kilograms of gold. These three kilograms together are worth approximately $150,000.
0: Damien Williams, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, announcing an indictment of Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey yesterday and displaying photos of gold bars. Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us.
8: Good
3: to be with you, Scott.
0: Uh, Senator Menendez, a Democrat, indicted again, uh, got a hung jury the last time. What do you make of these latest allegations?
3: The earlier charges involved gifts from a wealthy New Jersey eye doctor. Uh, This case alleges lavish payments from the government of Egypt for aiding that country in a variety of ways. Menendez, of course, is chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, this time, we have lurid and visual descriptions, solid gold bars, a Mercedes Benz, hundreds of thousands in cash. So, Menendez has already stepped down as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, as required by the rules. Now, we hasten to add, as always, the accused are innocent until proven guilty. And we know New Jersey voters re-elected Menendez Mm -hmm. after that earlier case, but he has to face them again next year. And 2024 could be a bad time to ask Democrats in particular to rally around someone who's facing indictment.
0: Ron, does this indictment, in addition to all else, possibly affect uh, which party might win a majority in the Senate next year?
3: Oh, yes, certainly. If Menendez is the nominee in New Jersey, that's if he is. Mm -hmm. The Democratic governor there, Phil Murphy, has already called on the senator to resign, uh, which would allow Murphy to appoint someone else. But for now, it's another blue state in play, vulnerable to the GOP. And it comes in the same week, the GOP seemed to find its preferred candidate in Pennsylvania, so the Democrats could be looking vulnerable in several eastern and midwestern states, plus another three in the Mountain West, while Republicans have relatively few of their own seats on the ballot
0: at all next year. Let me shift to the House now, and let me ask this quite directly. Are there Republicans in the House? who really want to shut down the U.S. government next week?
3: It certainly appears that at least a few of them really do. And that's all it's going to take, given the narrow margin of control. This week, the hardcore resistors were voting against anything and everything that had been negotiated, whether it was between the parties or just among the leaders in their own party. Their aim is to fundamentally change what the federal government does, not just how it does it. And we must add that this cadre seems to be responding to demands from the former president. Trump was on his true social mm-hmm. account late Friday saying Republicans should refuse to fund the government until they get Trump's policy on the border. And, oh, yes, a funding cutoff for the Justice Department that would end the
0: prosecution of Trump's indictments. House Republicans are also interested in impeaching President Biden. Uh, Senate Republicans don't seem to share their enthusiasm. Do you, do you think the quest to impeach is seen by some in the House as a popular cause? And do you think there is polling information and voter behavior to suggest it may not be as popular as they think it is? The polling
3: data would suggest it's a partisan cause and it splits the country along partisan lines. So the question becomes, how do you define popular? If you're trying to please a polling sample of one, and that one is your party's leader, the former president, mm-hmm. uh, then you can achieve something just by pleasing that audience of one. So for some Republicans, that will be enough. For others, it's another way to weaken President Biden's re-election bid next year. And they may succeed in doing that as well. But you know, Scott, the history of impeachment has been a tale of frequently
0: unintended consequences. Bottom line, be careful what you wish for. I do seem to recall that uh, obviously President Clinton was re-elected after impeachment, wasn't he? No, he was impeached in his second term, but he was quite popular. Right. even through... even more. Sorry. All right, you corrected me. Thanks. Ron Elving. This fall television season begins with a snag. Actors and writers unions are on strike. Scripted movies and series comedies and dramas can't be produced without writers and actors. Some more so-called reality shows are being scheduled for air, alongside Real Housewives of fill-in-the-blank, Dancing with the Stars, and live sports. We wonder if it might lead to nightly lineups like this. Sunday, Real House Pets of Des Moines. Home security cameras reveal all the furry secrets. Will Sir Fluffins the cat scratch the arm of the living room sofa, but he thinks no one is looking. Will Clarice the Chow Chow stop shedding on a dining room chair? And which pet left a little present on a living room rug? Everyone suspects Scooter the Cocker Spaniel. Nobody looks at Waffles, the golden retriever. Soon all is revealed. Monday, what's my password? Guests try to remember their own passwords to streaming services, social media, food delivery, and medical accounts. Is it the name of my daughter, Stuffed Bunny, plus the last year the Cardinals won the World Series? Uh, is it my birthday, plus John Snow, no H and John, all case with an exclamation point? Sorry, passwords don't match. One more guess before your laptop blows. Tuesday, U.S. Marine Corps produces a new real life drama. Have you seen our F 35? A pilot safely ejects over South Carolina, but a fighter jet goes missing. Text if you see it. And why didn't that $80 million cost for the jet include a $29 air tag? Wednesday, real houseplants of Scottsdale. Will Haley remember to rotate her fiddle leaf fig or just let it wither? Can an African violet take bloom in Maricopa County, Arizona? Will Chaz overwater his anthurium coral? Real leaf drama. Thursday, can you pass a spending bill? Elected public officials in the U.S. Congress drive the country to a fiscal cliff every few months. Will they do it again? Or can they make a deal in time for soldiers, park rangers, and food safety inspectors to get paid? Tune in. Friday, Dancing with the Actuaries. The men and women who can run the numbers bust their best moves. It's Tango Week. And after adding more Monday night football games during the strike, broadcasters bring you Saturday Night Buzkashi, Faded stars on horseback try to score goals by tossing the carcass of a goat. You think ice hockey is tough? Try Buskashi. Coming soon, get ready for the midseason replacement. Bachelor Orthodontist, making teeth and hearts alive. Can't wait. You're listening to NPR News.
7: Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8:18 and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a nonprofit is trying to make it more affordable to attend plays. It's offering free babysitting at theaters.
5: WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealth.ma.org. Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network So everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Jamaica Plain Open Studios' 30th year, today and tomorrow, starting at 11 a.m. Exhibits across J.P. Maps and info at jpopenstudios.com. It is 59 degrees
7: in Boston. Some rain expected this afternoon. Highs today in the low 60s. More rain this evening. A chance of some showers tomorrow. Highs in the mid-60s. This is WBR.
2: I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Tropical storm Ophelia is kicking up strong winds and heavy rain on the East Coast. The storm made landfall this morning in North Carolina. Heavy rain and windy conditions are expected through the weekend in the Mid-Atlantic region. The United Auto Workers strike has expanded. Thousands more union members have joined the strike against major automakers, walking out of dozens of facilities across 20 states. And top Democrats in New Jersey are calling on Senator Bob Menendez to resign after his indictment on bribery charges. Menendez has temporarily stepped aside as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but denies wrongdoing, staying in a statement that prosecutors have mischaracterized routine legislative work. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com npr and from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Five Americans flew home this week after being freed by Iran. They were released as part of a prisoner swap and after the U.S. agreed to unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian oil revenue. It highlights the fact that foreign governments, not terrorist or criminal groups, now hold the majority of Americans who are held overseas. We're joined now by Daniel Gilbert, an assistant professor at Northwestern University who was an expert in hostage diplomacy. Professor Gilbert, thanks for being with us.
12: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And why do you think we're, we're seeing more Americans being taken by foreign governments?
12: Hostage taking has always been a tactic that weaker actors use against their stronger opponents in conflict. So a hostage taker can be much weaker. They don't have to have the same kind of capabilities to really assert leverage against a much stronger opponent. 50 years ago, that was hijackings and embassy sieges and then turned into a trend of kidnappings by terrorist and criminal groups. And in the last decade, we've seen this trend shift toward hostage diplomacy, where states use their criminal justice system to take foreigners hostage.
0: What do governments hope to get? And I recognize that answer probably changes from case to case.
12: It seems like Russia, for example, is really interested in these one-for-one prisoner swaps, like we saw last year with the return of Trevor Reed and Brittany Greiner. But when we look at a state like Iran, they're often trying to negotiate hostage returns as part of much larger diplomatic deals that might involve their own nuclear policy. They might involve monetary or diplomatic concessions in addition to prisoner swaps. So this varies across different countries. What kind of pressures
0: do uh, kidnappings and hostage takings create, especially inside a democracy when there can be popular movements pressuring the government to, uh, to make concessions?
12: This puts a lot of pressure on democracies in particular that care about their citizenry. Uh, countries that have a devotion to civil liberties and that have a free press will tend to report on these stories in which American citizens, for example, are being held in brutal and horrible conditions wrongfully all over the world. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the White House to figure out how to bring people home and there's competing pressures there is the potential criticism of what happens if a white house fails to recover hostages or the criticism on the other side if they do make a deal that potentially partisan opponents find to be controversial like we saw this week does each
0: agreement that results let's say in a in a swap of hostages or in the case with uh, which has happened with Russia recently or in the case in, in Iran understandable as that might be in personal terms does it just encourage more taking of hostages and kidnappings
12: there is i think a very reasonable and legitimate fear that today's hostage concessions today's negotiations and deals will incentivize future attacks What I think is important to remember on the other side is that denying concessions has never kept our citizens safe. In the past, when the United States government has talked about not making concessions to terrorist hostage takers, for instance, that never stopped terrorist groups from kidnapping Americans, and in some cases, brutally beheading them. And that's because hostage takers can derive a wide range of benefits from hostage-taking that have nothing to do with the concessions. It might be about embarrassing an adversary like the United States, or it might instead be about playing to their own domestic audience.
0: Your bottom line, if I might put it, although there are things the United States can do, there are a lot of countries that have their own domestic political incentive in putting U.S. nationals in detention.
12: Absolutely, so hostage-taking unfortunately works. It's an effective tool for adversaries, for autocratic governments all over the world that they might employ for a wide range of reasons.
0: Professor, what foreign nationals does the U.S. have within jails or the criminal justice system?
12: The United States, uses its own legal system to arrest people who have broken the law. And sometimes that applies to foreign nationals as well. So as we learned in the case of the deal earlier this week, there were a number of Iranian nationals who had been arrested in the United States for a range of what are considered more minor crimes, ranging from Iran sanctions violations to theft and other conspiracies. In all of these cases, these are people who were tried and convicted in United States courts for lawbreaking in ways that are non-arbitrary and that they're not people who are being intentionally targeted because they are foreigners for the purpose of leverage. And that's the crucial distinction when we talk about hostage diplomacy, that in the case of the prisoners who came back to the United States from Iran this week, or from Russia last year, that these people were intentionally targeted because they are American citizens to be used for leverage against the United States government.
0: Danielle Gilbert, an assistant professor at Northwestern University. Thanks so much for being with us, Professor.
12: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Daniel Mason's new novel, North Woods, opens in the 17th century with a young man and a woman running from their Puritan village into the forest. The book tells the story of civilization and generations through a patch of land in the woods of what's now western Massachusetts. Let's ask the novelist to read what happens when the couple reach that spot with a pond clearing and seedlings raising their heads through ash.
8: Here, he said... They stripped their last rags, swam, and slept. It was all so clear, so pure. From his little bag, he withdrew a pouch containing seeds of squash and corn and fragments of potato. At the brook, he found a wide, flat stone, pried it from the earth, and carried it back into the clearing, where he laid it gently in the soil. Here.
0: What follows that here? Life, death, despair, and desire. An orchard grows, ghosts prowl, poisons lurk. Forbidden love blooms, and apple seeds sprout from the ribcage of a murdered English scout. There's also romance among all species in Northwoods. The novelist Daniel Mason joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to begin by asking you about one of my favorite characters, Charles Osgood, which I may not have to tell you is an honored name in the
8: radio profession. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: your charles osgood is enthralled by apples isn't he
8: right so charles osgood was a major um, in the british army and he's stabbed by a bayonet which has recently been used to cut an apple so perhaps that's the reason why he becomes bewitched with apples and obsessed with the idea of raising his own orchard and so he leaves this illustrious career and decides to head up into the mountains to found his own orchard and the tree that he finds is the tree that we've seen 60, 70 years earlier, growing up from a seed, which is from an apple in the belly of this English soldier that you mentioned. Much of the book then follows in some ways, not only the history of the people who live in the house, but also their interaction with this apple tree sits around for a long time. And there's like a lot of drama without giving away too much of the plot that occurs around the apple tree itself.
0: What do the apples represent to him, do you think? What do you call it Pamamania, if I'm not mistaken?
8: Yes, it's an invented word. palmomania. maybe it will become a, a true uh, recognized yeah. psychiatric condition one day, so literally a, a mania for fruit. You know, I think for him, he's somebody who has um, spent his life um, in the service of human goals and for the first time has turned towards the land. Something that i found in researching Northwoods is when wanders around in the woods, one encounters old apple trees everywhere and in places that seem like untouched forests. And you realize there must have been someone here at some time who planted this and cared for this and brought it up. And so for him, I think it also connects him to a kind of history as well.
0: Yeah. You also tell these stories through uh, letters and poems and journals, case notes of a psychiatrist at one point. How do you communicate in so many different voices? Not
8: just people, but personalities who who are in
0: different eras.
8: So one of the fun parts I think about writing this book was that there's a lot that I want to say, but there are limits. And in this case, using these older voices, not only was fun, it's like finding some instrument that you've never seen before and, and, and trying out like an old rusty trombone you find in the attic somewhere, seeing what it sounds like, seeing what kind of music it makes. But also there's this opportunity to express thoughts that perhaps my contemporary English don't enable me. And so I think, for example, one of the characters who I love is a a mid-19th century painter, a kind of Hudson Valley school-like painter who paints the natural world. And is very, very attentive to what he's seeing as part of his job. And so using his voice enabled a kind of um, indulgence, really almost kind of overriding, but in a real sort of indulgence in description, which I think I really couldn't have gotten away with if I had just used the voice that I regularly write in. Later in the book there's some sensational killings there's a true crime story again that allows a sort of tone that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to touch
0: I have to ask you about a scene in particular and I note that more than one review has centered on this too midway through the book you have the most vivid detailed you can tell where I'm going I know where you're going yes luxurious and erotic scene and it's about beetles <laughs>
8: right we talk about this on public radio
0: uh (laughs) undoubtedly we have to issue a warning next few minutes we will be talking about beetle procreation please go ahead mr mason okay all right well not just beetle procreation i mean romance you describe it as true romance
8: yeah you know even though i've i love writing about nature i had previously really mostly written about nature as a kind of setting and Mm -hmm. this time around i i thought i want to write about it As a kind of protagonist, what would it be like to treat it like I treat my human characters? And of course, all the good stuff that makes up the stories that we want to hear about human characters, all the drama, the sex, the violence, the treason, are ones that we can find in the natural world as well. So, what happens in the book is that I think many people know New England forests have been dramatically changed by a series of diseases that have come either in by wind, in the case of chestnut trees, or in the case of the American elm, which used to line the most streets, of most northeastern cities across the United States, uh, by a little beetle that, that carries the pathogen in when it burrows in to set up its nest and eventually to mate. And so this is really a moment where if we focus our attention on the beetle, what we're seeing is not a story of destruction, which of course it is for the tree and of course for the people who live around the tree, but this is the great romantic moment of the beetle's life and what would happen if we turn our lens onto that experience.
0: I, I mean I'm reluctant to ask you what kind of research went into this.
8: <laughs> yes. Well so this is one of those moments where truth is better than fiction. As I was reading around about, let's just call it the erotic life of insects, uh, I came across this wonderful academic piece that very vividly described the mating patterns of the skeleton beetle. Um, and I believe it's subtitled A Romp in the sack.
0: Oh, oh, S-A-C, Yes, right, yeah.
8: Yes, that's right, a very funny title for an academic piece.
0: All of the lives in here that pass through this forest and pass through this house and inhabit this patch of earth at different times, separated by years and even
8: centuries,
0: do their lives, do our lives feed off one
8: another? I certainly feel that that's the case. And I think one of the fun parts of writing Northwoods was thinking about how so much of the world around me right now um, is filled with meaning that I actually am not aware of. All the houses that I've lived in, all the places that I walked are places that have these tremendous histories. Tremendous amounts of drama, all of which has been lost for time. And yet there are ways of sort of peeling back that history, either through reading or literally through archaeology or anyone who has an old house who's um, had a moment to see what lies behind the wallpaper knows that there's an incredible depth to these stories. And so that gives me a lot of solace, not only connection to people around me at a particular period of time, but the sense of a connection to the people and plants and, and animals who went before me.
0: Daniel Mason, his new novel, North Woods. Thank you so much for being with
8: us. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Live theater tickets can be expensive at the cost of a babysitter. For many families, it can make seeing a show just too much, unless it's C.B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music. A nonprofit group is trying to bring safe, free babysitting to audiences around the country. It starts this weekend with a pilot on Broadway, building on a program originally created to help artists. NPR's Jennifer Venasco reports.
13: Grace Berryman is a parent. They are three and five. And when she saw the posting on Instagram, she couldn't believe it. Buy a ticket to a specific matinee of the Broadway show Here Lies Love and get free childcare down the block. I, of course, got online, bought tickets right away. I
14: think I checked in with my husband, but I was like,
13: we're going. (laughs) Berryman says working in theater like she and her husband both do often means they can't actually afford to go to the theater. Broadway tickets are expensive as is, and then to pay, you know, $100, $150 for childcare as well in that night is just something our family can't do. Berryman is exactly the kind of artist that Rachel Zankeda Spencer-Hewitt was hoping to help when she founded PALS. That's short for Parent Artist Advocacy League for Arts and Media. That's a mouthful, but it was started for a simple reason. It's hard to be both a parent and an artist.
14: One of the great needs for artists is having
13: access to the theater, to appreciate the art that they love to create. For Hewitt, advocacy for these parents comes from a personal place. She can't talk about it without tearing up.
14: PAL started from when I was a mom and an actor, both hiding my pregnancy to turning down about 95% of the auditions that came through because the contracts paid less than I would be paying the sitter. And I know that this is in, like, every industry has this dilemma of if the childcare costs more than my job's able to pay, how can I still do this? And I saw my
13: path to my career blocked because of the lack of support. That's why she's passionate about this. The organization soon realized that people who perform need an audience who can come watch. And many members of that potential audience have kids. So they started free babysitting off-Broadway. And now this weekend is the first time they're trying it on Broadway at Here Lies Love. The producers for the show say if it's successful, they'll schedule more dates. The goal is that every
14: show in New York has
13: at least one
14: caregiver-accessible production.
13: They're not stopping there. PAL is working all over the country. DC, The Triangle in North Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, Um, We have a Detroit chapter starting up, Dallas, Fort Worth. All art organizations should want to do this, Hewitt says. Not just theaters, but also museums, symphonies, operas. Someday, she says, an art organization that does not have occasional free babysitting will seem like an outlier. Jennifer Venasco, NPR News, New York.
0: Here are a couple good things. NPR's Alt Latino podcast and NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts. Put it both together. What do you get? El Tiny. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Ayesha, hear Felix Contreras and Anna Maria Sayer talk about the El Tiny concerts they put together for Hispanic Heritage Month including from one Venezuelan group. You can tune in tomorrow morning, live on your phone or your smart speaker or the radio. This is NPR News. This
7: is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Federal regulators are warning the MBTA to follow the rules after recent instances of workers nearly hit by trains. The Boston Globe reports the Federal Transit Administration sent a letter to the T accusing it of violating new orders the FTA imposed last week. The federal agency said the T sent workers onto the tracks alone despite a new regulation prohibiting such solo work. Massachusetts housing officials are launching a 90-day push to reduce the number of vacancies in state public housing by the end of the year. The initiative comes after an investigation by WBUR and ProPublica found nearly 2,300 state-funded apartments were vacant at the end of July despite a statewide housing shortage. State delegates for the Massachusetts Democratic Party are meeting today for their annual convention. They are gathering at the Songha Center
5: in Lowell to adopt a party platform. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And H&H, the Handel & Haydn Society, with Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel and Egypt, October 6th and 8th, HandelAndHaydn.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Josh Gombleman put the tough questions to Hillary Rodham Clinton and got answers. That's how great. often do you hang out with Pete Davidson?
15: You know, I, I am a big fan of Pete.
5: On Peter Segel, this week we'll talk to filmmaker John Wilson, creator of How To with John Wilson, and find out how much he hangs out with Pete Davidson. Join us for a maddeningly persistent news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Think of a bush pilot landing in remote rugged wilderness. You might automatically think we're talking about Alaska, but it should also be known that Idaho boasts some of the most backcountry landing strips in the U.S. And as NPR's Kirk Siegler reports, Idaho is also the setting for a dispute over restricting access to some of
6: those remote places. Idaho is home to the most federally protected wilderness of any state outside Alaska, 7,300 square miles of roadless terrain. And if you're going to fly into the steep, narrow canyons of the Frank Church River of No Return wilderness, let alone land in one, you'll want to have a backcountry pilot like Don Ryman at the controls. Just to
0: warn you, we will be flying close to ridges and the side of the hills
6: close to ridges and hillsides, he warns, over headsets that mask the roar of his 1979 Cessna Turbo 210. Now, Ryman has 50 years of experience. He was flying into these high-altitude, jaw-dropping Idaho mountains well before much of the land below us became federally protected wilderness in 1980.
0: We're gonna go out farther
6: past this point. This point is more a cliff, really, and Ryman needs a better view of the small green landing strip beneath it, so he'll do a flyover and then decide whether it's safe. Where the sun is, I can't see the trees and the well enough. The glare of the early morning sun is blinding. There could be an elk down there on the strip, he says. There's no air traffic control in the wilderness, obviously. The little Cessna banks, then drops. The tops of pine trees race by at 100 miles an hour outside the small windows, then thud. The tires hit dirt and grass. Another safe, conservative landing at Sulphur Creek Ranch. Good? And then down? Yep. And you might go ahead He figures down. it's at least his 50th touchdown here. So you gotta be comfortable controlling the airplane at slow flight within confined boundaries of the walls of the canyon without stalling it, because if you stall you fall out of the sky. Point taken. Ryman is stopping here to say hello and deliver some supplies to the ranch's longtime caretakers Kiri Schroeder and her husband Valdine. Oh, that's a lot, thank then, um, you. Oh my gosh. This is for you. They're trying to get the place reopened after a recent wildfire and then mudslide. This morning's chat is all about a certain neighbor who really likes to dine on the pipes that flow into the historic log lodge. We'll have no water in the morning. We'll think, what's going on? And Val will go out and he'll have a piece. He'll go, well, it looks like the bear had fun last night, right? The Schroeders live way back here for more than half the year. Do you go out at all? What do we used to say? I try not to. For funerals and lawsuits. <laughs> Sulphur Creek, originally a homestead, is kind of a relic of a bygone era when ranchers, miners, and adventurers relied on prop planes to access these remote Idaho mountains that later were protected as federal wilderness. The Wilderness Act bans all motorized travel. But we can still land a plane here because this was one of many sites grandfathered in in a compromise when the Frank Church was designated in 1980. Yes, we're called an inholding, lovingly by the Forest Service. (laughs) You could get here by horseback or a hike in a really long way, but there's a whole culture and economy built up in an American wilderness thanks to the relative ease of backcountry air travel. There's hardly anyone that comes in here that doesn't say, oh, this is so peaceful. I love being here. This is, oh, I miss this. And so I keep thinking our life is so full and fast that we've forgotten what it is to be quiet. Now, there are more than two dozen sanctioned backcountry landing strips in or surrounded by the Frank Church Wilderness, most managed by the U.S. Forest Service or the state.
0: Should be good Uh, seatbelts on.
6: Yes, sir, roger. When he's not doing supply runs or volunteer missions, pilot Don Ryman uses them to access remote trailheads for backpacking trips. He loves it. A lot of people don't quite know what to expect and
0: then it's pretty amazing when you get back here, just clearing trees next to cliffs and, and coming down the canyon and then landing. And it's a very unique experience
6: and it's a very valuable treasure of Idaho. But lately, longtime backcountry pilots have noticed an explosion in traffic out here that could jeopardize this treasure. At this Forest Service ranger station and airstrip along the famous Middle Fork of the Salmon River, planes drop off gear and raft guides and clients who are about to launch a seven-day float. There are also a few hobby pilots, as they're sometimes called, parked on this strip. Well, two here, one landed just ahead of us, and when we were on final, two more were in the air behind us following us in. It's busy in one of the emptiest spots on the map in the lower 48. In nearby Missoula, Montana, Andrew Hirsch is an attorney with Wilderness Watch.
8: The kind of traffic that goes through the Frank Church is
6: insane compared to any other wilderness area, especially in the lower 48. And the density of these landing locations and the amount of people flying to them. Hirsch says the 1964 Wilderness Act was passed to protect wildlife and preserve America's rustic character, not so the Idaho mountains could be a playground for the wealthy. There are already 26 official landing strips out here. Now, this summer, Hirsch's group filed a lawsuit over the legality of four additional ones that they say are being maintained under pressure by Idaho tourism boosters. Hirsch says some pilots are just flying to the most challenging strips, landing three or four times, just to say they bagged them. And then they fly back out of the wilderness to whatever lodge they're staying at uh, for the evening. They're not in there having a wilderness experience, they're in there having like a, a motorsport experience. The Big Creek Lodge and its airstrip sits just a few air miles west of the Frank Church Wilderness Boundary. You can drive here on a narrow dirt road from the nearest little town more than an hour away. Backcountry pilot Josh Lorenz flew in because he had heard about its popular breakfast. He's on a month-long trip through the west. I went from St. Louis to Anchorage, up the coast, uh, Bellingham to Ketchikan, and then uh, from Anchorage went uh, down through Canada and then down here to Idaho. Idaho, he says, is a favorite. It's the most challenging, even harder than Alaska due to its high-altitude landings and rugged, river-carved canyons. But for Lorenz, there's another appeal. Look at Colorado, look at Wyoming. All these places are getting so crowded and so people are trying to find nature. And I think backcountry aviation is one of the few places where we can really you know, get away and experience places like this. A quest, if not struggle, to find these last wild places, but also a debate about what wilderness really means. Conservationists hope their lawsuit here sparks bigger questions about whether all these flights are a threat to the wild land and the wildlife that Idaho is famous for. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News, Big Creek, Idaho. Kylie
0: Minogue looks to the Zodiac for understanding and inspiration.
1: Part and parcel of being a Gemini is Don't box us scene. I like to <laughs> feel like I can still shape shift through things. So the studio is a brilliant place to be able to do that.
0: And after feeling all cooped up during the pandemic, Kylie Minogue says she was eager to get back into a studio.
1: I wanted a refresh like we all did. I get the bargain. I, I love making a record. There's just possibility. I feel quite peaceful when there's possibility
0: tension is Kylie Minogue's 16th album like its predecessors the glittery disco songs that Pulse with lust and shimmy with confidence and twirl with musicianship. The track Padam Padam opens the album.
1: It's the heartbeat.
0: Padam Padam, Padam Padam.
1: You've got a Padam T-shirt on. You're very Padam red.
0: Thank you. Kylie Minogue likes my T-shirt. Sorry, I had to tell everybody. (laughs) Um, What was on your mind and in your heart, Padam Padam, when you were putting together Tension?
1: Oh, all sorts. Tension was recorded over... A year and a half a lot of life can happen in a year and a half there's definitely songs that are stuff that i was going through at the time and then others that are purely fantastical we're creating a story that is not what i'm going through or not relevant to me but definitely something i can relate to
0: there's really very astonishing range on on this album too for example if I might use the phrase 90s nostalgia, doesn't seem that long ago to some of us, but in any event, 90s nostalgia uh, in your song, Hands.
16: Big trap on the bassline, tick on the waistline, Don't rush, baby,
1: I didn't write Hands, that came to me as a, as a demo. That is one that took me parts of it quite a while to access the delivery, yeah. I don't think I've done many songs that would sound like that. It, it's got that 90s, breezy, you know, window down, car. In fact, when my AR spoke to me about that song before he sent it to me, he said, I know you're not a rapper, but this could be fun to try, it could work really well, it could be awful, but of course I was like, I'll give it a try. And it was it was quite refreshing to do something, well, once I managed to get it right. And now I love it as a sing-along. Now
16: I you am
1: like in, in a dream. No, I never knew your love
13: me
1: free. Well, you
0: know, your vocalizations are just terrific.
1: Thank Thank you.
0: Um, the, the way you sort of, you know, hug words and let them go and pick them up again with your voice is just great.
1: It's interesting you say that because part of making this album has been a voyage of discovery in exactly that realm. Sometimes it's driven me crazy, but I the satisfaction <laughs> of, of reaching what I think is the right point of the vocal, I love doing that.
0: There's a quote attributed to you in which you say there's no shortcut to learning your craft.
1: Uh, That's just one of my favourite quotes. I don't know where I came across it, but it is certainly a truth.
0: Tell us what that process has been like with you, learning your craft.
1: Um, I absolutely loved music as a youngster and I started out in TV. Charlene! What on earth do you think you're doing? I was trying to get in and he jumped me. I made a little bit of pocket money, which I put into singing lessons. I made a demo cassette when I was 17. My first single came out when I was 18, I
17: think.
1: That was locomotion and it was a runaway success. So I was kind of thrust into this new world of the music industry with zero experience. Yeah. I had kind of presentation and performance experience, as in cameras and the, the world of media and, and, and all of that, but not as in. Um, stage presentation or vocally how to get through a show so I basically learn everything on the job
0: but that means you can get better as you go along right
1: yeah I think every little bit of experience that one gathers is definitely going to inform your ability and your art to build on that to really you know pick myself up when things were hard to to get through those lows and really believe in myself even when I wasn't sure, to kind of find that resilience and keep going. Let, let me ask
0: you about a lyric in your song, Story, that caught our attention. Obviously, what that suggests is here you are on the outside, dazzling millions of people with joy, but there was but there was something, something harder, and it sounds forbidding and lonely going on on the inside sometimes.
1: Yep, we all have our struggles, and I had mine at that time. And once I came through that enough to look at kind of more, um, I was really struck by how much people, people close to you, knowingly or unknowingly, inform who you are. There's many things we can't achieve without love and support of those around us. So it's kind of like a, an acknowledgement of that and a thank you.
0: May I ask how your health is?
1: My health is quite fine, thank you.
0: All right, because you you had a cancer scare, cancer experience?
1: Uh, I, well, a scare sounds like it kind of scared you and went away. It's part of who I am, and I know I am a compassionate person, but when you combine your compassion and empathy for people with experience, it becomes a different thing.
0: And is that something you can share with the rest of the world, with your music, do you think?
1: I hope so, yeah. I think I did back the first album I made after my diagnosis and when I had recovered enough. I had like a half a centimetre of hair. I mean, it's very, you feel very exposed. Yeah. um, And very fragile. People have told me and shared it with me that they looked to me at that time for something they were going through or something a loved one was going through. And in my case, the cancer did not take away my essence. It made it difficult, but our little pilot light of who we are remains.
0: Please indulge one more question. If you could tell the young person you were as a teenager uh, what you've learned now at this point in your life, what do you think that would be?
1: An easy answer is keep a diary because I mean, I have my memories of what I experienced and what I felt through those times, but to have it written down would be interesting. I would say, it'll all be okay. (laughs) Even in the depths, you will rise. you know, try to be kind to yourself. I think we can be our own worst critics. That's one thing I would, would like to tell my younger self. And probably eat your greens. Eat your greens. <laughs> <laughs> oh
15: my God, touch me right there. Almost there, touch me right there.
0: It's been wonderful. Kylie Minogue, thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much for your time. That was a really great chat. Almost touch me right there. Don't be shy,
0: don't bite. You know, fiber is good for you, too. This is weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at wtgrantfdn.org.
7: Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues here on 90.9
5: WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. The Boston Book Festival, happening in Copley Square, October 14th, Fun for all ages, and it's free. Details at bostonbookfest.org. And Boston Lyric Opera, presenting a startling new Madama Butterfly in an all-new production. Visit blo.org for more information.
16: I'm
18: Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. We also help make sense of an increasingly complex world. We foster understanding, build community, and when we can, we spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future's not a given. Giving monthly, it is key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org.
19: I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon, this hour bickering and threats in the same party bring the chance of a government shutdown closer. Also how rampant corruption in Libya makes flood recovery even harder. Are football running backs especially vulnerable in a sport that can be brutal? And Rabbi Tamar Manasseh on the south side of Chicago shall light remembrance candles for those who died of gun violence this year in the seasons of repentance, teshuva and redemption.
15: No matter what you've done, You still are not beyond redemption. You don't have to wait to die to be judged. You can make teshuva, so you can come back.
0: First, our newscast is Saturday, September 23rd,
2: 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Tropical storm Ophelia is now uh, moving inland after making landfall a few hours ago in North Carolina. National Weather Service meteorologist Richard Bond expects Ophelia to dump heavy rain on the Mid-Atlantic.
6: The heaviest rainfall is with the
0: storm center as it's moving across North Carolina and parts of southeast Virginia. Uh, later today and tonight.
2: The latest update from the National Hurricane Center says Ophelia came ashore near Emerald Isle with top winds of 70 miles per hour. It's promising to bring a weekend of windy conditions and heavy rain up to seven inches to parts of North Carolina and Virginia. Both states, as well as Maryland, are under states of emergency. The September 30th deadline to avoid a government shutdown is approaching, and although House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the House will return next week, absent an agreement, the White House has directed federal agencies to prepare for a shutdown. The union representing federal wildland firefighters warns that up to half of them could quit unless Congress extends a pay increase by the end of the month. Colorado Public Radio's Tina Sieg says advocates for the pay raises joined Colorado Senator Michael Bennett in Grand Junction on Friday. In
7: 2021, the bipartisan infrastructure bill gave wildland firefighters an additional $20,000 a year. But that sunsets September 30th. Widow Michelle Hart says many firefighters have had to live in their cars.
14: These are basic human rights that we have that are obviously not being given to people who are on the front line. People like my husband who gave his life for his job and are in it because they're passionate and because they love their country.
17: Hart's late husband,
7: Tim, is the namesake for a bill introduced by Senator Michael Bennett, which would increase pay and benefits. For NPR News, I'm Stina Sieg in Grand Junction, Colorado.
2: President Biden is heading to Michigan on Tuesday to support the United Auto Workers on the social media site X, previously known as Twitter. He said he'll be joining the picket line, as NPR's Osama reports.
12: It's an extremely unusual move for a president of the United States to join a picket line. But Biden wrote online that he will, and he'll stand in solidarity with the striking workers. It's time, he added, for a win-win agreement that keeps American auto manufacturing thriving with well-paid UAW jobs word of biden's visit comes as the united auto workers expanded their strike as they seek a better contract biden's trip also comes a day ahead of donald trump's planned visit the former president is skipping the second gop presidential debate to instead rally with auto workers in detroit michigan is a key state in presidential elections trump won the state in 2016 but biden and democrats won it back in 2020 asma khalid NPR News.
2: And this is NPR News. This
7: is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The city of Leominster is suing UMass Memorial Healthcare to stop the closure of its maternity center. City officials filed the suit in Superior Court yesterday. The birthing unit is closing today despite vocal community pushback. Senator John Cronin represents Leominster and is opposed to the closure.
8: It hurts our community, it hurts economic growth and opportunity, and and we really do believe uh, there are people who are going to suffer and have poor health outcomes because of a lack of access
6: to maternal health care up here in North Worcester County, and that's a shame.
7: UMass Memorial officials say they do not have the staff to keep the center open. They are providing 24-7 transportation to Worcester for patients. State Department of Health officials say they cannot mandate keeping the birthing unit open. State delegates for the Massachusetts Democratic Party are meeting today for their annual convention. They're gathering at the Songha Center in Lowell to adopt a party platform. Keynote speakers include Governor Maura Healey, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, and Congresswoman Lori Trahan. The town of Arlington is unveiling two electric school buses at a ribbon-cutting today. The buses were funded with a grant of more than $300,000 from the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. The new buses are part of a pilot program aimed at reducing carbon emissions. The town aims to have a complete transition to a zero-emissions municipal fleet by 2030. Today the Boston Teachers Union is giving away more than 40,000 free books to families in the school district. Two authors and a fourth grader also will be holding read-alouds of children's books at the event. Families can head to the Boston Teachers Union Hall in Dorchester starting at 1 this afternoon to take part. At Fenway last night, the Red Sox beat the White Sox 3 to 2 and they're set to play again this afternoon. The Revs are in Chicago tonight. Some rain in the forecast, mainly this afternoon. Highs today in the low 60s. Rain likely this evening. Tomorrow, a chance of showers and highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The looming U.S. government shutdown looms closer. House Republicans this week failed to get an agreement within their own party on a temporary spending plan, and then they went home for the weekend. When they return, they'll have only a few days to avoid a government shutdown. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us. Claudia, thanks so much for being with us.
20: Thanks for having me, Scott.
0: This wasn't a bipartisan divide. This is House Republicans who couldn't reach agreement among themselves, right? Where are they stuck?
20: Right, in a number of places. They had a lot of arguments over the past week about trying to put forward the most conservative proposal possible to keep the government open just temporarily, just a few more weeks past this approaching deadline. Yet they were breaking down over top-line numbers, over whether to provide additional aid for Ukraine, or for public disasters, anywhere ranging from Hawaii to Vermont. They did start off the week on a positive note. There was lots of optimism for a bill that was being pushed by House Republican leaders. It was put together by two factions in the House, uh, the Main Street Caucus, which are more moderate Republicans, and the House Freedom Caucus members there, who are more along the hardliners' direction. But yet, too many members in the party were opposed. It was clear by Thursday they were breaking down and could not agree agree on anything. And we can't forget that Republicans hold a very slim majority in the House and they cannot lose much support.
0: Republicans do keep talking about passing all 12 of the regular spending bills. But is there enough time even for that?
20: No. And a House Republican-led committee met yesterday to try and hammer out these annual spending bills. But they won't be ready until uh, many, many weeks from now, maybe months And so that's going to miss that October 1 deadline when we could see a shutdown set in if not even a temporary funding bill is passed by then. So those bills are partisan as well as this stopgap funding bill that was proposed earlier this week. And so they are dead on arrival in the Democratic-led Senate.
0: Claudia, what's this mean for the coming week?
20: Well, it's a very high-stakes week. Basically, there are some folks who are hoping for some sort of a Hail Mary move that could get some sort of plan through both the House and the Senate, but... House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has previously promised to his members at the beginning of this year that he would give them 72 hours, that's three days, and what's left in the remainder of this coming week to hammer out a deal for a temporary funding bill to review a bill before they vote. And this is as McCarthy is facing round three of a showdown with his own members. The first was when he took the Speaker's gavel. That was a big fight with his own uh, members of his own conference. And then the second was a debt limit fight, which really weakened his position significantly.
0: And it raises the question, does he have much of a future?
20: He is facing more vocal calls to be ousted. It's possible we could see more momentum there from his opponents for him to step down. But this is all tied to the politics of a shutdown as well.
0: Can the Senate try and speed things up to avoid a government shutdown?
20: They could try to send over their own plan to the House, but House Republican leaders would have to reassess their position on trying to push a partisan-only bill and reconsider a bipartisan path instead. But that's a very tall order.
0: And Piers Claudia Grisales, thanks so much for being with us.
20: Thank you for having me.
0: China's hosting the Asian Games that began this weekend, and in addition to athletes, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. He's attending the opening games in China and met with Xi Jinping to try to deepen ties between their two countries. And Zaya Batrawi joins us now from Dubai. Aya, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. So why this visit now? First time that uh, Bashar al-Assad has been there in 20 years.
17: Yeah, I mean, Bashar al-Assad is definitely having a moment. I mean, this was a man who was a global pariah. um, And for years, the United States and Saudi Arabia and other countries were trying to topple his regime. But he managed to crush that rebellion and the popular uprising against his government with bombs and the full force of his military and security apparatus. The war killed hundreds of thousands of people and now millions of people of Syrians remain displaced. And for all of that, he was isolated by much of the world. But fast forward to 2023, he's in China with his wife. They are arriving to a red carpet, cheering Chinese kids, bouquets of flowers are being handed to them. And this whole rehabilitation got a big boost in May when Syria rejoined the Arab League because really Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries are arguing that the status quo, the state of Syria is untenable for the region. And China welcomed this. And they said, you know, they support Arab solidarity. And throughout this war, China has been a trade partner. Russia and China have also blocked um, resolutions at the UN Security Council that would hold his government accountable.
0: What do Syria and China want out of a relationship?
17: China wants a bigger role in the Middle East beyond just trade and business ties. And we saw that earlier this year when they managed to mediate the restoration of ties between Iran and Saudi Arabia. That was a big deal. But they're also leading a group of countries known as BRICS, with Brazil and Russia and others. And they see that as a counterweight to the U.S.-led group of seven. BRICS just invited four countries from the Middle East to join them. And in this region, look, for many, traditionally, the U.S. has been the economic and military power on the ground. And for al-Assad, he's not even in control of all of Syria's territory still, and the economy is on its knees. It is so bad there in Syria that people took to the streets again in recent weeks, openly shouting against his government. So Assad needs money. He needs investments. I spoke with Lina Khatib. She's the director of London's SOAS Middle East Institute. And she says it's really unlikely China's going to be investing billions like the West could to rebuild Syria. But even without that, she says Assad is still getting something out of this visit.
9: China is simply not a replacement for Western engagement in Syria. Assad deep down knows
0: that, but
18: he's trying to convey this message of defiance to the West. Assad is also
15: trying to send a message domestically in Syria about his own legitimacy.
0: I what are the two sides getting out of this visit this weekend, real deals or just the appearance of them?
17: Well, China declared what they call a quote unquote strategic partnership with Syria after the leaders met Xi Jinping and Bashar al-Assad. They've been promising deeper economic cooperation. You know, Syria is part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which aims to strengthen China's economic might through Asia and Africa. But there are optics to this. I mean, China's press said the two leaders discussed their shared opposition to foreign interference and hegemony. That is a clear swipe at the United States, which has troops in northeast Syria and is expanding its military presence in Asia to counter China. So broadly, this visit is a snub to the United States. It chips away at U.S. and European policy of isolating asset internationally.
0: And Pierre Batrawi in Dubai. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. <music> Truman Capote charmed readers with breakfast at Tiffany's. He chilled them with In cold blood. His work endures, but he didn't write all that many books and stories.
4: The lure of Capote over many other authors is that he was very, very discerning when he would put pen to paper or typewriter to paper.
0: Which makes the discovery of a previously unpublished short story written in pencil, All the more intriguing, the story behind that story, set in Sicily and called Another Day in Paradise. Later today on All Things Considered, listen on your radio or tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. There's a new train line connecting Orlando to Miami, a high-speed passenger train operated by the private company Brightline. Molly Durek with member station WMFE was at yesterday's grand opening in Orlando. What
15: do you think about the very first Brightline
16: coming here Orlando? Oh,
14: yeah. Hundreds of invited guests, news reporters, and government officials crowded onto Brightline's new train platform at the Orlando International Airport Friday to welcome the first train from Miami as it pulled into the station. Officials say it's a high-speed passenger rail service traveling up to 125 miles per hour between Central Florida and several South Florida cities. Suddenly
0: there's a new way to get to where you want to go. We think it's a better way.
14: That's Mike Reininger, Brightline's CEO. He says Brightline plans to offer hourly service with 16 round trips a day. Orange County Mayor Jerry Demings says now that Brightline is here in Orlando, he's hoping it can help expand the sunrail a regional commuter train connecting several central Florida counties.
15: I don't want it to be just about moving tourists around. I want it to be about moving the workers around who need a cost-efficient and effective way to be able to get around.
14: Brightline ticket prices start at $79 each way for adult passengers traveling between Orlando and Miami. But children travel at half that price. The Orlando-Miami route takes about three and a half hours, which is close to the time it takes to drive. But Brightline's director of public affairs, Katie Mitzner, says the train is a great alternative for travelers.
9: This is a car-free, carefree experience. It's efficient, it's comfortable, it's eco-friendly. They can be as productive or unproductive as they want on our trains. We do the work for them.
14: The first train arrived slightly late in Orlando Friday after a different Brightline train in South Florida struck and killed a pedestrian on the tracks. Mitzner says safety is Brightline's number one priority.
9: We have invested millions of dollars throughout our corridor to make it as safe as possible. Ultimately, it comes down to human behavior, and we want to reiterate to everyone, stay off the tracks, don't go around the gates, stay off the right of way.
14: Brightline officials say they hope to continue expanding the rail service to connect other cities separated by a distance too long to drive, too short to fly like Orlando and Miami.
2: Thank you, and enjoy the
6: ride.
14: For NPR News, I'm Molly Durig in Orlando.
0: All aboard, you're listening to NPR News.
7: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up in about 15 minutes, we will visit one of the oldest shops in Brookline, an Eclair Emporium closing today after more than 100 years in business.
21: Rula Kappas is the owner of New Paris Bakery. The customers here are just not customers. They're wonderful people. I noticed that from the very beginning.
7: Our audio postcard from an old-fashioned bakery in Brookline Village comes your way at
4: 935 here on WBR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, inviting you to spend time with New England's storytellers this fall, tour their 38 historic house museums, visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org. And Solar Gardens, residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at SolarGardensMA.com.
2: I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. Tropical storm Ophelia is moving inland after making landfall this morning in North Carolina. The storm is promising to bring a weekend of windy conditions and heavy rain to parts of North Carolina and Virginia. President Biden is set to head to Michigan next week. He's planning to be in Detroit on Tuesday to support striking members of the United Auto Workers Union. Former President Trump is also planning to rally with auto workers next week. And the September 30th deadline to avoid a government shutdown is approaching. And although House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the House will return next week. Absent an agreement, the White House has directed federal agencies to prepare for a shutdown. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Union of Concerned Scientists, championing science for a healthy planet and safer, more just world. Learn more at ucsusa.org. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The number of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border was down for a few months, but those numbers are climbing again, and they're on a pace to match the historic highs of last year. And among the migrants, a record-breaking influx of families. NPR's Joel Rose reports that it's a challenge that has vexed immigration authorities for a long time.
10: In the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, the families keep coming. Hundreds a day pass through a welcome center run by a local nonprofit called Team Brownsville, picking up donations of food and clothing before continuing on their way further north. We are starting again from scratch. We came here with nothing but our clothes. Francisco Sierra and his wife fled Venezuela, where he was a professor of education, and she was an engineer at a chemical plant Still, Sierra says, they were barely getting by and saw no future for their two boys, who are four and
19: five.
10: My career was practically six wasted years studying at a university. The effort is no longer worth it, so we looked for a way to immigrate to have a better future for our family. The Rio Grande Valley was one of the busiest sectors of the border in August. Immigration authorities arrested more families than any month on record, more than 90,000 people altogether border-wide. The scale may be new, but immigration experts say the underlying issues are not. Three administrations in a row have grappled with how to discourage migrant families from crossing the border illegally and found that there are no easy solutions.
22: We have not seen any policy reduce arrivals in the
20: long run.
10: Teresa Cardinal Brown is a former Homeland Security official who's now with the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington. Brown says immigration authorities are limited in how long they can hold migrant children in detention because of a long-standing legal agreement known as the Flores Settlement. Still, the Obama administration did hold migrant families in special detention centers, hoping that would deter others. But Brown says it didn't work. Migrant families kept coming.
22: Frankly, the more desperate the migrants, especially migrants who believe that If they do not come to America, their family will die or their kids will be killed. Like, it's very hard to deter somebody who has that level of desperation through harsh penalties.
10: Still, former President Trump's administration was determined to try, arguing that families and smugglers were taking advantage of generous U.S. policies. The Trump administration used even harsher tactics, deliberately separating children from their parents at the border. Here's how White House Chief of Staff John Kelly explained the rationale to NPR's John Burnett in 2018. A big name of the game is deterrence. And so
0: family separation stands as a pretty tough deterrent? Could be a tough deterrent, Uh, would be a tough deterrent.
10: But again, migrant families kept coming, and the Trump administration was forced to abandon family separation amid widespread blowback. President Biden promised a more humane approach at the border. His administration has decided not to bring back family detention. It's focusing instead on alternatives, like ankle monitors and curfews. And the White House is asking Congress for permission to reprogram some funding for community-based residential facilities for migrants.
9: It seems like family detention, but painted with a different brush.
10: To advocates like Cindy Woods with Americans for Immigrant Justice, that sounds like family detention light. And they argue it still won't work because these families are so desperate. Even Homeland Security officials can seem a bit shocked by that desperation.
6: It is heartbreaking.
10: That's Blas Nunez Neto, a top immigration official at DHS, speaking at a conference in Washington this week. Nunez Neto recently traveled to the Darien Gap jungle in Panama, where tens of thousands of migrants per month are making the dangerous crossing.
6: You see, you know, families with really small children, babies, you know, kids in
10: diapers, coming out of that jungle after having walked for four or five days with no food and little water, just in really dire conditions. Even the perils of the jungle are not enough to stop these families from coming. Joel Rose, NPR News.
0: There are calls for accountability in the city of Derna, Libya. After devastating floods there killed more than 11,000 people, according to Libyan authorities. Storm Daniel broke through two poorly maintained dams last week and swept away entire neighborhoods. Of course, Libya is divided by warring factions that are vying for power and wealth in that oil-rich economy where corruption can be rife. Alia Brahimi is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council who researches Libya. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Who's in charge of Derna?
18: The country's been divided for almost a decade now, geographically, so that in the West, um, you have a UN-backed government in Tripoli, and in the East, you have a rival parliament that's controlled by a warlord named Khalifa Haftar, And um, it's his authorities that are in charge in Derna. These two sides, in their repression and their activities, they actually look a lot like each other and like the Gaddafi regime. Um, the prime minister in the West was never elected. He was appointed to bring the country to elections, and he's essentially refused to do that. And he relies on some fearsome militia groups to stay in power. And in the East, where Derna is, you have what is effectively a police state under Khalifa Heftar and his sons, backed by Russia. And they're sort of now securitizing that relief effort in Dona. And then the, the tenure of both sides, as you intimate, is underwritten by eye-watering levels of of theft and of corruption.
11: Yeah.
0: You say eye-watering levels. What kinds of corruption?
18: Plundering of state institutions by politicians systematically and the militias that keep them in power. And then alongside this, you have the smuggling of, of humans, drugs, fuel, and weapons on a colossal scale. So many Libyans actually call it a gangster state.
0: And how did this complicate flood recovery?
18: well you know corruption is the defining feature of the modern libyan state and it sort of suffuses everything as you describe it explains why the two dams that unleashed the violent wall of water that deluge dona why they hadn't been maintained, Mm -hmm. Um, and then you have the corruption of the mayor and the municipal authorities who essentially pilfered state budgets and kind of mired the city in mismanagement and neglect, and this decimated the city's defenses to the violence of the storm. But there's an even more profound and sinister framework of corruption that kind of encases all of this in eastern Libya, which is the military rule in the eastern part of the country, where General Khalifa Haftar styles himself after Gaddafi and aspires to basically a dictatorship. So they have a stranglehold over the economy, which is one thing, but the other is that they've weaponized development. and they kept Derna in a state of deliberate collapse as punishment for resisting Hefter's consolidation of power over the East. And now we're seeing their leadership philosophy you know in full bloom where they've imposed a media blackout. They're preventing people from assembling because they have protested and they're um, arresting grieving protesters.
15: Mm.
0: So this this kind of enforced suffering probably made the damage of the flooding worse, and, and makes recovery even harder.
18: That's absolutely correct, and I think the final reckoning will demonstrate that. In some ways, what happened is a story about Derna itself. Derna is an ancient city; it's historically an intellectual center. All that changed under Gaddafi because its its intellectuals and thinkers resisted his rule, and the city was severely punished as elsewhere in the Middle East, when all the liberal or secular intellectuals are killed or flee, Mm -hmm. the only idiom of opposition left is Islamism. So Derna became a key city for the Islamist resistance to Gaddafi and then now uh, to the new Gaddafi, Khalifa Haftar. And so it was bombed and and collectively punished. And and once Haftar had finally subdued it five years ago, there was no way he was going to rebuild it.
0: Are Western countries not implicated in any way?
18: You know, in Libya, there are no overarching ideological struggles, really. There's no sectarianism. It's fairly homogenous. It should not be this divided and dysfunctional. And that is the work of the political class, who are right now two families, and they've sort of sucked all the air out of the room since 2011. And we continue to divert to them as the West and as the international community. And why are they doing it? They're doing it for fiefdoms, for power and for money. So I think the West has to stop that notion that because they are Libyan, they speak for Libyans has to stop. I think we need to start using some sticks when it comes to their vast wealth they've accumulated and sort of shining a light on their misdeeds and holding them to account and basically reminding them that nobody's fooled.
0: Authorities say there's going to be an investigation into what happened during the floods. Uh, You have any confidence in that?
18: I wouldn't have any confidence in a local investigation. You know, the Attorney General, again, is fairly formidable, known as uncorruptible, but he lacks the resources and the expertise, quite frankly, and the the support domestically to effect an investigation worthy of the victims and the scale of the catastrophe. An international investigation, I think, would be hugely welcome in Libya, and it would reaffirm that they haven't been forgotten, as Libyans, but also the dead from this particular event. Uh, There was one angry and and despairing resident who recently, he posted a video online and he said, these people don't fear God, but they fear the camera. You know, we need to get that camera rolling. And I think an independent, impartial, technical, international investigation could represent that kind of camera.
0: Ali Abrahimi is a non-resident fellow with the Atlantic Council. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. And now it's time for sports. Tough week for NFL running backs, baseball's playoff race, and sports washing will go on, says so the Saudi prince. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us now. Michelle, thanks for being with us. You bet, Scott. Week two of the NFL season, we have already seen two conspicuous injuries to running backs. Uh, Mm. Cleveland Browns, Nick Chubb, uh, and then Saquon Barkley of the New York Giants. Um, In addition, of course, to the risk of brain damage, to be blunt about it, are running backs especially exposed to dangerous injuries that can shorten their careers and their health, their lives?
19: Yeah, well, definitely their careers. You know, the NFL, a lot of people say, stands For not for long and the average Mm -hmm. career in the NFL is around 3.3 years and running backs careers are 2.7 years on average that's a big drop off for such a short amount of time Scott yeah and they're really important cogs on the offense they're carrying the ball running the ball getting violently violently tackled blocking. You know on every play but their salaries have been dropping in recent years while their teammates on offense those salaries have been going up uh and the gulf is starting to bother a lot of star running backs you know you mentioned saquon barkley he's the best player on the giants offense this year he's making 30 million dollars less than daniel jones his quarterback Now, the issue here is that a lot of coaches have gotten wise to not paying these guys later in their careers. And the flip side is that the running backs say they should be more fairly compensated for all the mileage they're putting on their bodies. Scott, not likely to be resolved until the next collective bargaining agreement, unfortunately.
0: Finally, the Major League Baseball regular season. Uh, Let's spotlight two divisions, the AL West, the Astros, Mariners and Rangers locked in a three-way race. I never root against Jose Altuve of the Astros <laughs> to come through.
19: Well, the defending champs, right, eltuve and the rest of the everyday players on the Astros, Scott, they're not going to be getting much rest this week. Uh the division champ is going to come down to the final week of the regular season in the yeah. AL West. The Astros, Mariners and Rangers all within a game or fewer of first place with just a handful of games left. Now, with the Astros falling to the Royals last night, Rangers are in first place in the division for now. Mm-hmm. For how long is the big question mark? I personally would love to see the Mariners pull it out, Scott. Uh, oh. As we all know, Seattle's never won a World Series. Right. It would be amazing to see them go on a little bit of a run.
0: I'll do, oh, sorry. Uh, A-L East. <laughs> uh, no Yankees, no Red Sox this year. It is the O's and the Tampa Bay Rays. I can't help but think this is kind of nice for baseball, isn't it? It's
19: refreshing, uh, at least if you're not in New York or Boston. Um, Orioles and Tampa Bay Rays, right? Both playoff teams. Division title, not a given just yet. AL East is going to come down to the final days here. It is nice for baseball, I think. The Orioles, they're in the playoffs for the first time since 2016. They had a little bit of a champagne party in the clubhouse after they clinched a spot last week. I just don't know how long they can keep the party going in Baltimore. We'll see.
0: And we'll just note at the end, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman says, yep, they're going to go on buying sports stars stars and sports leagues, aren't they?
19: Yeah, and I personally don't quite understand the return on investment here for Saudi Arabia. I guess, you know, the idea is that all these investments in sports are going to distract from human rights concerns, but it actually seems like it keeps those concerns very front and center.
0: (laughs) That's an excellent point, Michelle Steele of ESPN. Thanks so much, Michelle. Sure. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
7: Thanks for joining us this Saturday morning here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Today, An era ends in Brookline. One of the oldest shops in town is shutting its doors. New Paris Bakery opened in Boston in 1919. In 1929, it moved to Brookline Village, where it has been selling eclairs and other treats ever since. Rula Kappas and her late husband took ownership more than 30 years ago. Recently, she tried to sell the business, but that didn't pan out. So she's saying goodbye and moving back to Greece. This week, I stopped by New Paris Bakery for one last visit with Kappes and her loyal customers.
21: The eclair is the foundation of the store. Eight of the chocolate eclairs. How many vanillas? Four. The customers here are just not customers. They're wonderful people. I noticed that from the very beginning.
4: I grew up in Brookline and I currently live in Brookline. And my family's been coming to this store for as long as I can remember. And yeah, I mean, talk about comfort food. You have an eclair and it's sweet and the, the custard is creamy and it's, you know it's all homemade. When I would come, if we're having an event at the house and we're getting some, I would buy half a dozen just for myself on the way home, which is not the best for my health, but I always enjoyed. For decades, we'll be saying, if we ever have another eclair, it's nothing like, <laughs> rule us, like the new
21: Paris.
18: I'm just coming Hi. to give you a hug. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, dear. Good luck.
21: Yes, thank, thank you. you very much. Oh. Very nice. Okay. And I'm
18: going to try to bring Joan. He lives in Somerville now, but I'm going to Please, I'd hello. love to see him. Yes.
12: <laughs> My mother started in 1922 going to the location that was then um, down in what's now the combat zone. And she got the little eclairs for the um, ladies' teas always. I was born in 44. And this is the only place I remember from being, what, four years old?
21: I think one of the reasons that I couldn't get a buyer, it's a grandfathered in bakery, it needs changes that come from within systems have to be updated and it costs money. But in a way I'm glad because they would have mixed it up with their own recipes. 104 years of New Paris Bakery I think is more than enough. What would you like? <laughs> I have a Claire's. okay eclairs, you know eclairs. Yes, how many? Um, I wanted six. One, two, three, four, five, six with a vanilla. Perfect, and some these too? The reason I'm here
20: is because there isn't any place that does these eclairs better in the universe. But more importantly, it's the community spirit and the love and passion. And Rula has courage beyond belief. An entrepreneur, a spirited traveler, and a wonderful
21: human being. These are the kind of people I am surrounded with and they'll, I'll miss them because now I'll be asking for that kind of people wherever I'm going. I hope to find them, you know what I mean? But um, in any case, these people have helped me and I love them to death. And uh, I had a lot of fun with them and they supported me.
7: That's store owner Rula Kapis. You also heard longtime customers Jim Kalmus of Brookline, Ellen Gormley of Marblehead, and Annie Friedman of Chestnut Hill. The new Paris Bakery in Brookline is history once the eclairs and other treats sell out today.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Jamaica Plain Open Studio's 30th year, today and tomorrow starting at 11 a.m. Exhibits across J.P. Maps and info at jpopenstudios.com. And Davis Malm, committed to protecting your intellectual property, one idea at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S, M-A-L-M. This is 90.9 WBUR. Leminster is suing
7: UMass Memorial Healthcare to stop the closure of its maternity center. City officials filed the suit in superior court yesterday. The birthing unit's closing today despite vocal community pushback. The Sumner Tunnel is closed again this weekend for more repairs. The tunnel connecting East Boston to downtown closed at 11 last night and will reopen at 5 a.m. Monday. This is the second of eight planned weekend closures before the end of the year. The rainy forecast is disrupting some community events. Somerville's annual What the Fluff Festival in celebration of marshmallow fluff has been postponed from today to tomorrow in Union Square. West Concord's Porch Fest also has been rescheduled for tomorrow. The Roslindale Porch Fest is called off but might reschedule. And the Taste of Alston is canceled. It is 60 degrees in Boston now. As for that forecast, the rain's likely to start this afternoon. Temperatures today in the low 60s. Rain likely tonight, a chance of showers tomorrow, with tomorrow's highs in the mid-60s. I'm Meghna
4: Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. We are in the midst of Judaism's High Holy Days. Last weekend was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Happy 5784 to those who celebrate. Yom Kippur begins tomorrow, Sunday, at sundown. That is the Day of Atonement, but also a time when Jews remember their loved ones who have left us. Rabbi Tamar Manasseh will be holding a Yom Kippur service in Chicago, and not in a synagogue, but on a street corner. Rabbi Manasseh joins us now from the south side of Chicago. Rabbi, thanks so much for being with us.
15: Thank you for having me. Good morning.
0: Where will you hold this service?
15: I will be holding this service on the corner of 75th and Stewart on the south side of Chicago. It's um, the street that borders Inglewood and Auburn-Gresham. And And why hold it there? You know... People there need the Yom Kippur. Jews have this beautiful relationship with God, where every year there is a chance for us to be forgiven. There's a chance for us to forgive. There's a chance for us to do all of this soul searching. In a place where there's so many murders, people don't have that kind of connection with God, and they don't have that kind of connection with loved ones that they've lost. And not only is it the idea of yes core, the idea of remembering, the idea that no matter what you've done, you still are not beyond redemption.
0: I gather you light a one yard site candle, candle of remembrance for each person killed by violence in Chicago over the past year. I have to ask how many candles and recognizing there might be more by the time you light them Sunday, how many candles this year?
15: So far, we're at 647 candles. Last year, it took us 45 minutes to read off 800 names. So part of our service is saying the name and remembering by name each one of those lives that, you know, are no longer members of our city and our society. So we light a candle. It looks like a conflagration out there because we have so many candles every year.
0: Are there passers-by? How many people stop by? People come from all around? What's the scene like?
15: Oh, no, people come from all around, and people are curious. I like that I can do things like this on a street corner so people can be as involved or as not involved. They can watch from across the street, or they can come over, and they can light a candle, and they can stand with us, and they can read with us, and they can pray with us. The idea is they have access to our Judaism. So a lot of people in a neighborhood like that where they experience so much loss, where people have said the very things that they do to survive are things that they have to atone for. And to be given the opportunity to have this audience with God in this very special time is mind-blowing. It's a mind-blowing concept for people who have never heard of this. So it is a gift that we have to give to the community.
0: Rabbi Manesha. I think a lot of people might be surprised to meet a black woman rabbi.
15: Yes, they always are.
0: So how did you come to that, may I ask?
15: I think it was just the natural next step. And it was like, you know, I'm from Inglewood on the south side of Chicago. Girls like me don't grow up to become rabbis. Not from my neighborhood, we don't. I've learned that it has to start with you giving black girls and black boys a voice. And Judaism gave me a voice. I grew up believing that I could do something. I lived in a place where there was so many problems. We always had to wait until we got a new elected official to fix it. But growing up in the Jewish community and going to Jewish day school and being exposed to this idea that these problems are not other people's problems to fix. They're yours. It was empowering the idea of tikkun olam. You can fix this problem. You don't have to wait on someone else to do it.
0: Rabbi, as you know, I'm also a Chicagoan. My heart bleeds almost every night. You mentioned we have to fix this problem. What can we do?
15: It starts with education. And honestly, it starts with just basic human respect, with recognizing the humanity in each person and treating them as such. Because when you treat people, when when you treat people as human beings, they tend to act more human. I've actually seen gun violence be reduced as a result of introducing Yom Kippur to a neighborhood full of people who feel like they have to have a gun in order to leave their house because they're afraid. People who have shot other people, people who have been shot, to give them this idea that you aren't the sum of what you've done with your life. You can get a clean slate. You can start over again. That makes some people say, hey, you know what? I'm not gonna pick up this gun. I don't need it anymore.
0: Rabbi Tamar Manasseh on the south side of Chicago. Thank you so much for being with us, Rabbi.
15: Thank you for having me an easy fast to all of those who will be fasting. Thank you. Shana Tova.
0: Writing a children's book requires inspiration, imagination, and a spoonful of problem solving.
4: This is Julie Andrews, and I am an author and an actress, and uh, it is a pleasure to be here today, and I'm with my daughter. Hello, I'm Emma Walton Hamilton. I'm Julie Andrews' daughter and co-author. Well, our latest book, and we've written many books together, is called The Enchanted Symphony, and it was inspired by a photograph that I saw of a little opera house completely filled with plants,
0: all strange things. Nearly 2,300 plants, one in each seat of the Grand Teatro Liceu in Barcelona. The photograph was taken in June 2020, when the opera house had its first concert a few months into the start of the pandemic.
22: It totally captured our imagination. At first, we just saw the photograph, but then we discovered there was a video There's a small string quartet and they come on stage and they play a Puccini piece for this audience of house plants. The piece is called Chrysanthemum in Italian. So we tried to imagine what might cause an opera house to be filled with plants instead of people. And we we came up with the little fable that is the Enchanted Symphony.
4: Yeah, we didn't want to write particularly about COVID, which was, of course, the reason that the plants were there just as a statement. So we had to come up with another reason. And we chose a mysterious fog, a
22: mysterious fog that rolls in and blankets the village and creates a kind of an ennui and a despair and causes people to stay at home.
0: The Enchanted Symphony follows a little boy named Piccolino. His father is the maestro at the opera house. One day, as the maestro was sweeping the stage, Dame Julie Andrews and Emma Walton Hamilton write, Piccolino wandered over to the grand piano. Gently raising the lid, he played a simple melody that echoed in the empty space. The sound was startling and sweet, and the maestro paused to listen. For a moment, his spirits lifted, and he realized how much he had missed music. But without an audience, the orchestra had no reason to play. Of course, Piccolino has an idea for how to bring music back to his village. Enchanted Symphony is just the latest children's book from Dame Julie Andrews and Emma Walton Hamilton. It's illustrated by Ellie Mackay. And here they are talking about it on our children's book series, Picture This.
4: Can I talk about Ellie? (laughs) (laughs) Can you describe how you make your work, which is so different from any other illustrator that I've been aware of?
16: Well, it's funny. I thought about becoming a set designer when I was a teenager. And um, I guess I sort of work in miniature sets. So I build things three-dimensionally. I have a miniature theater or several miniature theaters and I build sets. I create the scenery and I create the characters and set them within the little scene and then I light it and then I photograph it. So it was interesting because I had to create a theater inside my miniature (laughs) theatre. So I thought about all of the seats and the lighting, the chandeliers, um, how the curtains would fall and how the stage would be set. And I thought about uh, how I would layer these house plants further and further away. So it creates that sense of depth.
4: I don't know how you manage the fog in your illustration, but it's brilliant. Oh, thank you. The key things that were uppermost in our minds were
22: a quality of timelessness. We wanted it to have a sort of a, the quality of a fable or a fairy tale. And the other thing that concerned us was, of course, the fog. And I mean, it really is a character in the story. So we were concerned that the story would lack color. And so, you know, seeing the, the way in which Ellie's work is transparent and is translucent and luminous gave us the confidence that she would be able to capture both the fog and other colors at the same time, which of course she beautifully does.
16: I tried to use a lot of vibrant colors for this book because children love bright colors. I was thinking about the palette and I wanted the gloomy scenes all to have this kind of purple feel, lots of purple tones, and then the joyful scenes to be lit up with greens and reds and golds. And I used shadow quite a bit to to contrast kind of the darker times with the lightness and play that came with, with the music. Really, and I love,
4: Ellie, in the book, how you've woven the music when it's coming out of the great opera house doors and you feel the sound of the music by the way you've illustrated it. It's lovely. I think that a lot of times illustrators and, and the writers of books don't get enough time to chat and talk to each other and but in our case we love talking to our illustrators and in this case it was a delight.
16: Oh, that's a nice I found it really uh, useful getting feedback. One of the great things about working this way is that it's so easy to change things. So I'll leave one of my sets up until it's actually finalized and approved so I can move things around. So one suggestion was uh, fewer flowers and more houseplants. And so I got busy and made more and more houseplants and filled my little theater full of houseplants and it's so much fun to just play and create uh, in that way. So um, I guess that's all part of it.
4: Yeah, and it was exactly as we sort of imagined it because truly we do see in our heads what we are writing about and then to have it come alive so well and so completely right is one of the great benefits, the fun part. There is one particular illustration
22: that I think is my favorite which is of Piccolino, our little boy, throwing open the great opera house doors to let the music out into the world. And the music is surrounding him and moving and sparkling. It's full of joy. Full of joy and radiance. Mm. And he is full of joy. He's sort of jumping in the air with his arms in the air and there's this light from behind him.
16: I don't know if you knew this, but um, Piccolino, I was imagining my son the whole time that I was thinking of the story, I was imagining how he would go through things. He uh, loves to grow things. So he grew all sorts of trees from seed and he brought them out into our front yard and set up a stand like you'd set up a lemonade stand and sold them to our neighbours. So we have trees around our community that he started from seed. And so, yeah, he's that kind of outgoing kid that connects with everyone. So I was thinking about him throughout the story.
22: We didn't know that. That's just wonderful.
4: (laughs) Basically, the little book is about what matters most in your life and don't lose sight of the really important values, which to Emma and to me are obviously nature and the arts and family and community. Community in general,
22: yes. When we started writing together 25 years ago, my, my mom was living in Los Angeles and I was living on the east coast and my children were very young and in school and we could only work together early in the mornings and of course mom was three hours behind we would actually uh, work via phone at those days but mom would always come to the phone in her nightgown because it was so early in the morning and as a way of sort of preparing herself for the workday, she would spritz herself with perfume.
17: Which Even no though, one
22: could see or smell, but no. it made me feel a little more awake at six in the morning. It was so funny. But now, happily, we live in the same town and
4: we are able to be together in the same room when we write, which is invaluable. Also, I think we have different strengths, which is what makes us so compatible in a way, because Emma is a wonderful teacher of, of children's creative writing, and, and her strength is that she's the nuts and bolts of our books she does, for instance, all the important things like the first act, the second act, the third act. And I'm more the flights of fancy. I write the mostly write the opening or the, uh, the pastoral scene or the end of the book or the ends of chapters or sometimes, well, we each come up with sometimes an idea for a character halfway through the book that might be an interesting left turn, so to speak. And it's really a process of, of finishing each other's sentences, as you can probably
22: gather from hearing us talk. <laughs> and then, of course, multiple printouts and multiple
4: edits. And, and multiple cups of tea and to multiple cups of tea. stimulate us along the way. Always PG tips. English breakfast with milk. That's what I'm
22: drinking as I'm talking to you. I think what we have learned most from working together is the degree to which being creative casts a kind of a magic spell on our relationship, on our lives. That shared time together spent just being creative
4: and creative problem solving. And playing in a sandbox that is totally individual and full of imagination. It's a lovely place to to go. It's almost like creative weightlifting, you know, it strengthens our relationship. Yeah, Yeah. Anything like that. Yeah, Yeah,
22: it really strengthens our relationship.
0: Emma Walton Hamilton, Dame Julie Andrews, and illustrator Ellie Mackay, all talking about their new children's book, The Enchanted Symphony. Our series Picture This is produced by Samantha Balaban. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott
11: Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can learn about the wine, winemaker, and region, every purchase supports NPR programming. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
7: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 60 degrees in Boston, some rain on the way, most mainly this afternoon.
5: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, inviting you to spend time with New England's storytellers this fall. Tour their 38 historic house museums. Visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com.
6: One in four federal inmates who have died in federal prison since 2009 died at one facility. Butner Federal Correction Complex in North Carolina. That's according to a new investigation from NPR. If the public knew how badly the medical issues were of these individuals, I would think they would be shocked that they're still incarcerated. That story on All Things Considered from NPR
10: News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
11: I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.